The following is a continuation of our series, Onward and Upward, looking at our daily growth through sanctification. We hope you enjoy. Well, howdy, everyone. I am glad to be able to speak today. Tree was gracious enough to let me look at the Word with y'all. I'm going to open us in prayer, but we are going to be talking about the cost of sanctification, and we'll look at what that means. Why don't y'all pray with me, and then we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for everyone that's here today and their willingness to take some time out of their week and be in community with God's people, come here and listen to the Word And I pray that your spirit would move tonight, that hearts would continue to be renewed, and that as we look at your word tonight, I pray that you would help us put off what is earthly within us and help us to set our minds on what is above and put on purity. We love and we praise you in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. We're talking about the cost of sanctification. What that basically means is, is that we've started this series on sanctification and you may hear it in the world that once you become a Christian, life is supposed to be easy. There are several people out there who will tell you once you become a Christian, you'll be able to be rich, you'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy, and actually if you don't have those things, then you're not really a good enough Christian. But actually when we look at God's Word tonight, we're going to learn that the exact opposite is actually true. That when you become a Christian, suffering is almost guaranteed. In fact, it is guaranteed. But the suffering that we face produces something beautiful. We grow and we're renewed by it. I was thinking of maybe a short way to maybe describe that or illustrate that. And so I thought of today, it was the first time that I had lifted weights in like six months because of the virus. I got real lazy, like I don't really want to lift. But then my roommate started bullying me about it and said I was getting smaller. So I said I would go lift with him. And it was hard. It hurt. But it also felt good. It's kind of interesting. I could felt that I was growing and improving and becoming more healthy. But at the same time, it hurt. Or maybe like another example would especially since a lot of you are middle school and high school, maybe you've woken up one day and your back or your legs really hurt and kind of walk differently or maybe you like buy a, you know, like a counter and you hit your hip accidentally, right? Because you're growing, right? And so there's some pains that come from growing. And so in some sense, that's kind of what sanctification is. There's a sense in where there are some growing pains that come with sanctification. It's not easy, but it is good. In fact, Joe Novenson, a pastor, he put it this way, the gospel is working most when you feel it hurt. The gospel is working most when you feel it hurt. So we're going to look at a few passages that discuss the costliness of following Christ. Just know that there is real sacrifice and pain and difficulty in following Christ. Sanctification is costly because God calls us to pick new priorities, persist through pain, and to perish our proclivities. And I'll explain more what each of those things mean. But first, we're going to look at pick new priorities. So I'm going to have Caitlin come up and she's going to read Luke 14, 26 through 33. Luke 14, 26 through 33 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid down a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man has has begun to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, 
will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet who, who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you've grown up in the church, this passage might seem a little surprising, right? Because, you know, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. But here, what does he say? He says in verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's a little confusing. Which one is it, Jesus? Are we supposed to love our family and our neighbors or are we supposed to hate them? And so, what I want you all to see here is that Jesus is using what's called hyperbole. It's a literary device that says he's going to say something very extreme to make a point. And his point here is that when you become Jesus' disciple, you must pick new priorities. Your priorities are reprioritized. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we hate our family in the way that we view the way hate. What it means is the way that we love our family is going to be countercultural and it's going to be different than the world, right, in the way that they love their family. It also means that what we value most should be Jesus and everything else should be far behind. Jesus is our top priority and everything else flows out of that. And so there should be no question as to what our top priority is. And it may even seem like other things that are important, they may, it may seem like we hate those things in comparison, right, when it comes to the glories and beauties of, of Jesus. Another interesting thing here, right, is he says you may even have to hate your own self. Now, just to clarify again, the Bible is not advertising for self-hatred in the way that we, we, we use the word hate. Self-hatred is also bad. But again, this is about priorities. And so his point is, what do you need to deny? What do you need to renounce in order to put Jesus first? What does that mean? Does that, for some of you, does that mean video games? Are you supposed to, supposed to hate video games so that Jesus, Jesus can be number one, right? Do you find yourself always and only just kind of in your room playing video games instead of maybe taking some time and spending it with the Lord? Maybe for some of you it's sports, right? We got the Super Bowl coming up. Let's all acknowledge that we live in a culture that more or less worships and has an idol with sports. Hate sports in the way that Jesus is talking about. What about appearances, right? How do I look? What do people think of me, right? Are those things that we need to hate too, that we need to deny ourselves of, so that we can come to Jesus and he can be our top priority? We've kind of explained what Jesus means by to hate those around you in order to make Jesus your top priority. Not that we don't care for them, not that we don't love them, but our top priority is Jesus. But then interestingly, he makes an analogy. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. And then later, he also talks about, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? How is that related to also hating your brothers and your wife and your sister? I think his point is we need to reprioritize, right? Jesus must be our first priority. But also, that's not easy. And he's acknowledging that, right? You've got to count the cost. You've got to recognize that there are things in your life that you love and you don't want to let go of. And Jesus is saying you need to sit down and recognize that it's going to be hard to let go of those things. You need to sit down and deliberate, right? What do I really need to let go of? What do I really need to build this house? What do I really need to defeat this army? Right? There's real thought, there's real discernment, and there's real sacrifice. 
We are called to see if there are things in our lives that are keeping us from a relationship with Jesus. If there is, we are to renounce those things. And as we said earlier, sometimes we must even renounce our own lives. So I'm going to ask Caroline to come up and she's going to read Matthew 16, 24 through 26. And we're going to look at the second point that I got for you all today, which is that God also calls us to persist through pain. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Thanks, Caroline. So there we see in this passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's talking again about the great sacrifices of what it means to follow Christ. And he uses the phrase, pick up your cross. I think all of y'all, if you're here, you probably know what a cross is, right? Jesus died on a cross, and it's of that day and age was the most excruciating form of execution. He'd be telling his followers, yeah, to follow me, what you're going to have to do is pick up a cross and basically own it. Just say like, yeah, this is my cross and almost like be proud of it, right? Like I'm going to pick up my cross and I'm going to follow Jesus. That's a little odd. That's countercultural, right? Because what Jesus is telling you there is you're not supposed to be self-protective. You don't have to protect yourself. You're actually supposed to lean into what is not self-protective. You're supposed to lean into what is uncomfortable. You're supposed to lean into what may feel awkward. And that's really just kind of countercultural for us because we are super self-protective, especially in a physical sense. So it makes sense that we would also be self-protective in a spiritual sense or in a relational sense, right? Think about in our world today. Most of you, when you get in the car, you put a seatbelt on. Or if you don't, your parents make you put a seatbelt on. Why do we do that? We want to protect ourselves. Same with if you play football, you wear pads. Right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're supposed to wear masks so that we don't spread a virus. And that's in order to protect ourselves. You know, helmets, whether you're in construction or you're riding a bike. Or even just think about like your natural reflexes, right? If you're cooking and you touch something hot, like what's your reflex? Pull it away. You're self-protective. But what Jesus is saying, spiritually, I'm actually asking you to not be self-protective. Do what's not natural to you. It's almost like he's saying, like what Joe Novenson said, the gospel works most when it hurts. And so when you're feeling spiritual pain, maybe you should lean into that. What does that look like for high schoolers and middle schoolers to pick up their cross? I mean, we don't live in the first century. I don't look around and see people just carrying around a cross. So what does it look like to pick up your cross? Well, let's think about this maybe relationally. You're all old enough now to have had your feelings hurt, right? Someone hurt your feelings. And I'll tell you what the self-protective thing to do. The self-protective thing to do is to cut that person off. Say, they hurt my feelings. I don't need them. I don't need them. And so what you'll do is you'll go find other friends and you'll gossip, right? And I know that you'll do this because I do this too, right? It's a very natural thing where we'll go gossip and we'll say, that's the easier thing. Right? That, that makes me feel better to talk about it so that I can kind of get it out of my system. But the unselfprotective thing, the gospel thing actually says you seek reconciliation and you have the awkward conversation and you walk up to that friend and you say, you hurt my feelings when you said this. Even though it would be easier to pretend like you weren't hurt or to pretend like it wasn't a big deal. Another example maybe of being self-protective is a lot of you have a lot of different social circles and maybe there aren't Christians right, in those social circles. The easier thing is probably to not live for Christ or not show them or preach the gospel or live your life in a way that declares Jesus. Maybe it's easier to kind of, if they make a joke that's inappropriate, to kind of just laugh at it or blend in, right? And I'm just as guilty of that also. But I think what the gospel thing is, what it looks like to pick up your cross, is to actually say, I don't know about that. Let's talk about that. I actually 
have another belief, and it's called the gospel, and share that with them. Right. So it also looks like standing up for what is right. Maybe for some of you, right, some of you are homeschooled, and so you're with your siblings all day long. So maybe picking up your cross looks like respecting your siblings instead of looking down on them and saying, I know way more than my siblings. Maybe for some of you it looks like respecting your parents. Your parents have a lot of wisdom, but maybe sometimes it feels like they don't because you know it better, but you're called to respect them. Maybe let's not just think about this relationally, also to like school or work. Right? Maybe some of you would like to do it for your own glory instead of God's glory. You only care about the grade, right? Or you'd rather take the easy way out and maybe text your friend for the answers on an assignment, right? That's trying to do it your own way. The way that is picking up your cross is by doing the work and dying to yourself. Or maybe, you know, sports, extracurricular activities. Maybe for you it means you have to respect your teammates, respect your coach. Whatever it means to glorify God in whatever area you need to do instead of just protecting yourself, is what it means to pick up your cross. And so, why do we lean into this pain? Well, it says it in verse, verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? There's an eternal significance here, isn't there? What good is it to be self-protective and have all you want, but then forfeit your soul? It's not. So, it's not just that we're supposed to not self-protect so that you know, we can follow Christ and feel the beauties of the gospel wash over us. But also, in a sense, like if you're self-protective, you're really saying, I'd rather have my comfortable life than my soul. And what Jesus is pointing out is, that's foolish, right? The eternal is greater than what is now. So don't live for what is short, live for what is eternal. So what does it mean to forfeit your soul? Now, a lot of you may read this passage and immediately your mind goes to martyrdom. Martyrdom is just basically, you know, actually, literally dying for the faith. And there's tons of missionaries that have done that. In the early church, there were a lot of people that were crucified or burned at the stake or decapitated, right? And that is for sure what this is talking about in an element, right? We're called to die, called to forfeit our life so we can gain our soul. But also, in another sense, martyrdom is not the only thing that's being talked about here. It's also saying that we're supposed to be dying to ourselves every single day. Now, what does that mean? Well... As Christians, we are called to be constantly losing our lives for Christ's sake daily in a spiritual sense. Which brings us to our last point, that sanctification is costly because God calls us to perish our proclivities. And I'll define both of those words, but first I'm going to have Tree come up and read Colossians 3, 1 through 10. Then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie with one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Thanks, Tree. So here we see that we're supposed to, what does it say? It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What do I mean by perish or proclivity? So perish just means if you were to perish, that you were to die. Or it can be used as a verb, right? You perish something. So maybe if you were at worship this last Sunday, we sang a song called Jesus I, my cross, have taken, and there's a line in it that says, perish every fond ambition. What it's talking about is we're supposed to kill what is earthly within us. And what a proclivity is, is simply defined as a tendency to choose or do something regularly, an inclination or a predisposition toward a particular thing. 
when I say perish our proclivities, what I mean is we're supposed to kill those things which are natural to us that are sinful. We are called to kill our sinful tendencies and our earthly tendencies. It's kind of like if you were to wake up one day, you've got to change your clothes because your clothes are dirty. Right? Or maybe you went and played a sport. You want to take a shower and change your clothes. Right? So you're called to take off your dirty clothes and put on new ones. As it talked about in verses 5 through 9, we're to be actively killing our old self, right? So sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So Romans 8.13 clarifies this more when it says, For if you live according to the flesh, or to what is earthly within you, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, how do we put to death the deeds of the body? Well, the simple answer is actually just faith and repentance. We're called to rely on Christ. So, in verse 2, right, of the passage, it says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And then, in verse 5 through 8, right, how does it start? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So, we're called to set our minds and then also put away. And so, what are ways that we depend on the Spirit and where we're not really doing it on our own? Well, one of these is, this would be an example. We meet together with other believers, right? And other believers remind us that we can't do it on our own, right? We need each other. Or we worship together. Harrison's going to lead us in a song later, right? When we worship, we're reminded that we are not God, but we have a great God. Prayer. The whole point of prayer isn't to get what you want. The point of prayer is to recognize that you can't do it on your own and you need God to do it for you. Read Scripture. You don't read Scripture so that you can say, look how great a Christian I am. You read Scripture because you say, God, I am poor in spirit. I don't know what to do. Give me the wisdom to do it. You don't read Scripture. You don't pray. You don't worship. You don't come to community so that you can say, look what I did. You do those things to say, I can't do it on my own. Right? So to set our minds on things above is to remember that we have been raised with Christ as He has taken the punishment on Himself. And hear this, this is important. The heart of sanctification is the work of God. It's not the work of man. The Spirit not only perishes our proclivities, but also He puts purity upon us. Colossians 3, 12-14, which is right after the passage we just read, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, and the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We need to submit to the work of the Spirit. An example that I thought of this is from the Chronicles of Narnia. It's from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And if you know anything about the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a character named Eustace. And he's a little punk in the book, especially in the beginning. He kind of does everything his own way and he's kind of rude to everyone. In a part of the book, they come across this island and they run into this treasure and they tell Eustace, be wary of this treasure because if you steal anything, you're going to be cursed. They've heard rumors about people being turned into dragons because they've taken this treasure, but they're not really sure. So they warn him about it and then they leave and Eustace stays behind. And what does Eustace do? Of course, he takes a bracelet from the treasure and puts it on. And then what happens? Well, Eustace turns into a dragon. Eustace begins to realize that as he's a dragon, he kind of starts to have this repentance. He begins to realize that he really wasn't ever really kind to his friends. He begins to have this remorse in his heart of his former character ways. And so one night he can't sleep and his arm is hurting because the bracelet's still on him, but he grew to the full size of a dragon, so his arm's really bothering him. He can't fall asleep. He looks up and there's a lion. We know who that lion is. It's Aslan, right? Eustace doesn't really know. Eustace sees the lion and the lion says, Come, follow me. Aslan brings him to this pool and... Eustace is like, oh, that pool looks really comfortable. So he's about to step into the pool and the lion's like, can't get in yet. You've got to undress. And Eustace is like, undress? I'm a dragon. I don't have any clothing. And then he begins to think, oh, he means take off my scales. Take off 
my scales, you know, snakes, they shed scales. So that's what I'm going to try to do. Eustace starts clawing at his skin. He's trying to take off the scales. But each time he takes off a layer, there's just a layer there. He does it one time, two times, three times. It's still there. So then, and I'm going to read from the book, but I don't know if, if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, Eustace says. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling that stuff peel off. And so after Eustace describes how Aslan painfully tore off these scales, he talks about how Aslan throws him into this water and then takes him out of the water and gives him new clothes. Sanctification is truly accomplished by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit applying the work of Christ to our lives. The Spirit puts to death our old self, which of course just reflects that Jesus was put to death for us. The Spirit puts on the pure and perfect righteousness of Christ, which of course reflects that we were raised with Jesus through his pure and perfect and powerful righteousness. Because of the work of God, we are able to participate in his purpose. And so I want to go back to the Colossians passage, right? Verse 3, where it says, For if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are hidden in Christ. And so don't get this twisted, right? It's not that we are saved because we put to death things. It's not that we're saved because we put on righteousness. No, what does it say? You put to death what is earthly in you because you have died with Christ. You already are saved, right? You put on purity because you have been raised. Jesus has done the work. Now he's just letting you participate in it, right? He's applying that work and it hurts sometimes, but it's actually a joy to know that Jesus is working and he's renewing and he's sanctifying you. And so we have the joy of participation, but we don't have the burden of saving ourselves. We have the joy of being renewed, right? But we don't have the burden of saying, I got to do it on my own, right? We can endure the cost of sanctification because Jesus has already paid the price, right? All you got to do is just say, Jesus, I can't do it. And I never could. So please do it for me. Rip the scales. Rip the scales and earthly sin that's on me. Rip them off because I can't do it on my own. You're thinking... I mean, you just explained a very painful process. Do I really want to participate in his purpose? Is that really what I want? And the answer is you do. You shouldn't fear participating in his purpose because God is with you. He draws near to you in your suffering. I'm reminded of Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You're not your Savior. And that's a good thing. God is with you. So don't be discouraged. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they draw near to you. And sometimes it's painful when they draw near to you, but it's always good. And when you're hurt, and when you feel that pain, God looks at you and he says, you're mine. You are my covenant child. He is with you through the pains of sanctification. No trial or tribulation that you face in middle school, high school, college, career, retirement, none of that will ever overtake you. God is there with you all the way through. Let's rest in him, for he is our only hope. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and help us, help us, Father, to rest in you. Help us to not be discouraged by the pains of sanctification, but to be encouraged and actually realize that it is a joy 
that we get to participate, that you allow us to participate. So help us to do that well. Help us to submit to you and realize that there's nothing we can do. That truly the heart of sanctification is your work and it's the work of Christ and it's nothing that we've ever done. We love you and we praise you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. We hope this has been helpful for you. Please keep an eye out for more audio upcoming from WYM.